Welcome to the Museum of Femininity, a podcast where I, Charlotte Appleyard, discuss random topics of interest that relate to social history, art and material culture through a female lens. I hope you enjoy. Welcome back to the Museum of Femininity. In this podcast, I like to explore attitudes towards women in history by analysing the way they were represented in visual culture. In today's episode, we have an excellent example of this in the form of Florentine profile portraits of women, which were produced in the 15th and 16th century at a time when real women were rarely represented in art. We will be asking the question, what was the purpose of these portraits and what can they tell us about the place of women in Renaissance Italy? In addition, the impact they have had on art and art collecting, particularly in the Victorian era, and how they have contributed to the creation of a certain beauty archetype. The quintessential version of this portrait depicts a young white woman with fair hair and a rosy complexion. She will be stylishly dressed in contemporary clothing of that time. The fabric of her gown, as well as The hair embellishments and jewels she wears will often be very expensive and luxurious. From these portraits we can glean the lady's attractiveness, level of wealth and to a certain degree her virtuosity. Although the most memorable versions of this genre are paintings, there are also examples of sculptures and bronze medals, which is hardly surprising considering we mostly associate the profile portrait with portraits on coins and medals. However, we're not going to be covering those today. We will mostly be focusing on portrait painting. In addition, there were also sets of portraits which would portray a husband and a wife. The sitters in these portraits are largely anonymous. However, the very best of them are executed with wonderful precision capturing what appears to be a true likeness and recognisable features which are quite different from the slightly warped appearance of medieval art. In fact, to many eyes, it is shocking that many of these paintings were completed as far back as the 1400s. It makes them all the more captivating, as if we are almost looking at a photograph. It is an interesting and contradictory effect as these portraits are still very much idealised and voiceless beauties. However, by looking at the clothing, composition, iconography and purpose of these portraits, we can understand a great deal about gender within the Florentine society of this period. First of all, we will briefly discuss some historic context. As always, I'm not an expert and there is much more to discover about this interesting topic. I will be suggesting some reading materials in the show notes, which you can check out if you want to learn more. These portraits appear during a pivotal moment in art history. There have been many earlier innovations, both technically and in terms of depicting emotion and meaning in art. Artists and the public were waking up to the possibilities of art and how it could mirror reality as well as the sacred. We also see the establishment of schools of art, 
as great masters passed down their knowledge and style onto generations of young artists, providing vigorous training and in turn creating distinct imagery and stylistic approaches which became widespread in certain regions like Florence and you could say that these portraits are perhaps an example of this. Venice was also a location where there were many famous art schools. It was an exciting time filled with innovation and experimentation as we saw more expressive depictions of biblical stories and an increased use of perspective in artwork, indicating a gradual but definite emergence from the medieval mode of visual culture. Paintings were created bespoke for patrons and varied in subject and purpose. Sometimes they would be to adorn the walls of a private palace or perhaps an altarpiece, signifying their social prominence and commitment to the church. Prominent families rose up and became known for their art collecting. So Isabella d'Este is an example of that. There's an, an, an episode about her earlier. And of course the Medici family, the Gonzaga family, there's lots of them who became known for their collecting. And having lots of artwork was also a strong symbol of your status and your wealth. Traditions were different throughout Italy, so today we will focus on Florence. In Florence, inheritance was through the male line, unlike other areas in Western Europe, where possessing noble blood could lead to a woman inheriting wealth and power that was of a domestic or even political nature. However, Florence was more conservative in many ways and was a merchant republican society committed to Christian values with a firm belief that the honour of men should reside in their public image and service as well as in the purity and virtuosity of their wives. Women were completely excluded from public life and kept in the homes with little in way of purpose other than to provide their husbands with heirs. The confinement of Florentine women can be seen in these portraits as often they appeared framed in the window of their houses. So what were attitudes like towards women? In a strict Christian society, biblical ideals dictated everything. Of course, you can go back to original sin with Eve eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge and as a consequence triggering the fall of man. Once more she was created from the rib of Adam, solidifying her as his subordinate. This story triggered the stereotype that women were foolish, sensual and weak, as well as untrustworthy. However, women were also held up and glorified aspiring to meet the high standards of the Virgin Mary, which of course exacerbated the idea that all women should be pure and virtuous. Marriage was essential for any woman to strengthen allegiances between families and to secure the continuation of the dynasty. The process of marrying was a lengthy and ritualistic one, taking place over a number of days, However, it was the dowry that served as a major component with the exchange of gifts between the bride and groom's families and often a large sum of money on behalf of the bride's family. 
Interestingly, women often married men who were sometimes almost twice their age, which caused a number of issues, including around a quarter of Florentine ladies being widows, which also prompted numerous stories and proverbs about pretty young wives being seduced by the handsome men in their household. Once more, with older husbands came a lower probability of birthing children. I always get the impression that they were sort of like pawns in a chess game, just kind of exchanged and swapped. And, you know, if your husband died and you were still young enough, then you would be passed on to another family. And um, also, I believe the dowry was always given back to the family when the husband died. So again, there was this element of bargaining and having that money to bargain with. It just feels very restrictive and it feels like a lot of women didn't have a strong identity, that 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 feels like a rare thing. The prototype for this portrait composition was devised by Filippo Lippi, who developed the profile picture genre while experimenting. What resulted was an established standard which would become popular in portraits of Florentine ladies. One of his portraits is painted in 1450 to 55 and exhibits a mixed technique of broad brush strokes and precise dots throughout the composition and help capture the glint of gold. She is framed by an architectural structure which echoes the buildings by Brunelleschi. There is also a series of visual metaphors which tell us a bit about the sitter, who despite this remains anonymous today, like the large majorities of paintings in this genre. The shell lunette, which appears often in Lippi's Madonna paintings, was often used as an architectural halo for sacred figures in paintings and sculpture. In addition, the open window framing the sitter's profile depicts a blue sky and remote shore in the distance, which is intentionally shrouded in a haze. This is supposed to signify eternity. As well as this, she is demurely pulling her veil together in a gesture of modesty, which also happens to display her impressive collection of rings. This painting is useful because it shows that although the women are quite stoic and ornamental, there is a strong visual language which evokes a pure and idyllic character which was considered essential in any young lady. As mentioned earlier, these portraits sometimes included a male counterpart. Usually this would be in a separate matching portrait. However, I think one of the most visually interesting is Woman with a Man at a Window, painted in 1438 to 1444, also by Lippi. Here we see a fashionably dressed lady sat in a rather claustrophobic interior, which I don't know is entirely intentional. It's probably because during this century, artists were still kind of figuring out perspective. And within this space, you see a rather creepy face of a man, which is kind of emerging from a window and staring at her. And she is also facing him. And they're kind of mirroring each other, but the female figure is much more prominent. The two figures have been plausibly identified as Lorenzo di Raineri Scolari and Angiola di Fernando Spatiti. 
I'm so sorry about my pronunciation. And this couple, they were married in 1436. And we can make this link because the clothing the couple are wearing is very indicative of that period. The woman is also dressed in French clothing with this fashionable saddle-shaped headdress, which was called a cellar. It has also been suggested that this may have been commissioned to celebrate the birth of their son in 1444. So that gives us another indication of why portraits like this were, were painted. And let's momentarily revisit the fashion. So she is also wearing this red fur trimmed overdress and the cuffs of which are embroidered in gold and pearls with the word loyalty. This emphasises the importance of a woman's place in a family and what was expected of her as a representative for that family. Perhaps one of the most famous sets of portraits were created by Antonio or Piero Pola e Uolo, who were painting in the mid to late 1400s. The eldest Antonio was considered to be the more gifted of the two, and established a distinctive style that differed from the more individualistic portraits by earlier artists. In terms of clothing, the women often wore pearl necklaces and brocade dresses with pomegranate pattern sleeves. Their blonde hair was often styled in a simple way as well, and their features, which although recognisable as original, are clearly idealised versions of the original, I guess you could say. He has transformed them, clearly, into this symbol of feminine allure. However, he has a masterful technique and was clearly making the most of the new oil medium. His fine impasto brush strokes even effectively simulate the individual strands of hair. This method to a modern eye has created an almost photorealistic effect and makes the portraits all the more realistic and sort of appealing, I suppose, because you sort of feel like you're looking at a window into the past. Um, and this is all because of their apparent realism. Antonio was perhaps commissioned for his immense skill and his exact ability to transform a woman into this true beauty. Perhaps his use of sim similar clothing also reflects a certain affinity with current fashions that may have attracted potential patrons, who of course would want their wives or daughters to be painted in the best possible light. Analysing these portraits can tell us a great deal about a woman's place in society. For example, the inclusion of expensive jewellery. The jewels would have been given to the woman by either a father or husband as a symbol of marriage. Advising her son about the adornment of a potential bride in 1465, Alessandra Strozzi wrote, quote, She must have beautiful jewels, for just as you have won honour in many things, you cannot fall short in this. So adorning your wife was clearly a matter of honour, as if they were well turned out, then it reflected well on the family as a whole. It is no coincidence that in this time a woman was often referred to as the husband's crown. Another element of the jewels in these portraits which highlights the bridal connection is that in this period there was sumptuary legislation which restricted the public display of luxurious goods like clothing and gems. 
This allowed more ostentation during wedding celebrations. Based on this, we know that many profile portraits are either of new brides or wives, and their exterior wealth, beauty, and upright noble decorum would have enhanced the reputation of the men who commissioned the portraits. These portraits enticed Victorian collectors, perhaps because they were so enigmatic and reflected idealised beauty. However, I think the narrative around these works in the height of their popularity was extremely fascinating. For example, there was a common perception that during the Renaissance, there was a strong emphasis on the individual. Due to this, when people read portraits like this, the realism only exacerbated the need to place a personality and psychology on the sitter, even if their purpose in the piece is to be an ornamental figurehead, symbolic of a family's status and nobility. For example, one writer described Paula E. Uolo's portrait of a lady as, quote, a shrewd, practical lady, sharp-witted and certainly not without passion. This is reflective of the work of Burkhart, but also echoes emerging methods in writing, as psychological novels by authors like Henry James became more common. But of course it's completely anachronistic, because how could you analyse a painting and know what type of person the woman was, especially if she's an anonymous sitter? In addition, the Victorian era was marked for its religiosity and upright reputation, which the birth of the Salvation Army and Temperance Movement, combined with the restrictiveness and modesty of clothing during the time, really suggests. It is no wonder that art lovers were drawn to the purity and virtuosity that exudes from these paintings, which visually are filled with language and imagery that would have reminded the viewer of the Virgin Mary. Examples of Florentine portraits spread in popularity and were widely collected and obtained by national museums in Britain and America. There was a tendency to apply fanciful backstories to the portraits. For instance, at the National Gallery in London, many of their portraits were attributed to Piero della Francesca, who was popular at the time, and the sitter of one was claimed to be the Countess Palma of Urbino. When in reality, as we've said many times, nobody knew who these women were and they were probably obscure members of respectable merchant families and to this day are anonymous. The most lauded artists of the Quattrocento, however, was without a doubt Sandro Botticelli, who was immensely influential on artists at that time in the 1800s. Uh, for instance, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, purchased Botticelli's Woman at a Window in 1867, which is fitting considering he was the founding member of the pre-Raphaelite movement and was devoted to this era of art, as well as being an obsessive painter of the female form. In particular, he seemed to quite like red-headed beauties like Jane Morris and Lizzie Siddle, who were two of his muses, and you could even say their appearance was kind of similar to this idealised fair-haired beauty which you see in this earlier Florentine quattrocento genre of painting. 
Interestingly, one of Botticelli's best-known works, which I just mentioned, The Woman at a Window, was believed to be of Florentine beauty Simonetta Vespucci. This is disputed, but she was thought to be the lover of Giuliano di Medici. The Medicis were a very powerful Florentine family who were also great art collectors. She also tragically died of consumption at just 23 in 1476. This mythologizing of her beauty in these elaborate profile portraits, where she is depicted like a nymph with a rather strange ornate plaited hairstyle, is strangely reminiscent of Lizzie Siddle's own fate, as she too would die young and would turn into something of a romanticised figure in a similar way. And I think that happens a lot, doesn't it, with women who are very creative and uh, they pass away tragically at a young age. They're sort of immortalised. Needless to say, a cult-like following sprung up around paintings like this and created a competitive art market and an appetite for attributing artworks and identifying the sitters as well. Incredibly wealthy and well-known individuals like Arabella Huntington purchased these portraits for the purpose of decorating Renaissance-themed interiors. Many paintings obtained during this mania for collecting were also fake and created to satisfy the high demand. It seemed that perhaps the quest for authenticity was less stringent and it was more the look of the work that drew in these American millionaires. So in conclusion, Florentine portraits of women are mysterious and visually arresting works of art. In addition to being aesthetically beautiful, they also provide us with a fascinating window into 15th century Florence and the role of women in society. Women were useful for securing alliances between families through marriages and continuing the legacy of those families through producing heirs. This was their main function and life goal, which would have been heightened by the extreme Christian worldview and devotion to the Virgin Mary, who was the ultimate standard for any woman. In these portraits, you can see how women were treated, objectified and presented as something to be exchanged and a representation of family pride and status through the various adornments and luxurious clothing. I think this is the thing to take away, the emphasis on purity, the importance of image in doing your family proud. In addition, these portraits evoke the role of marriage and how this can affect the freedom of a woman, as so often they are confined indoors as portrayed through the common motif of a window or domestic space. It is a shame we know so little about their lives and what was going on in their minds, which is also why their legacy in art history is an intriguing thing to grapple with. By analysing how quattrocentro artists and figures were worshipped in the 1800s, we can also see how romanticising the past has become a common trait which manifests itself in media, culture and fiction today, such as in the devoted Jainites who dress up and attend reenactment balls in honour of Jane Austen, or even 
in the revival of the 80s in TV shows like Stranger Things, really nothing has changed and we still look upon the past with rose-tinted glasses. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode. I had a lot of fun researching it and learning a bit more about these portraits. So when I go to London in a few weeks, I can go and pay them a visit at the National Gallery and have a bit more knowledge when I look at them. So that's one of the fun things about this podcast. I'm always learning more or re-remembering, I suppose, things I learnt when I was at university. And it's, you know, great fun and really fulfilling for me. And um, I hope you've taken something away from it as well. And thank you for listening. I, I do appreciate it. I'm always amazed when anybody listens to this podcast. So give us a follow on Instagram at the Museum of Femininity. I'll be posting some of these portraits. And there's some resources in the show notes. In particular, I want to shout out the exhibition catalogue for Virtue and Beauty, which was an exhibition that took place, I think, in 2001. And I found that to be an invaluable resource. So I'll put details about all of this in the show notes. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your day and your weekend. Goodbye.